Good morning, church. How y'all doing this morning? Good, good, good. Um, you know, we're, we're marching through the, um, the book of Exodus. That's where we've been for the last um, several weeks. And um, I got to tell you that as we're going through this series and talking about life in the wilderness, and that's where the Israelites are, um, the, the pastors have had um, more feedback, more discussion, uh, more requests for, for prayer, more opportunities to counsel people who are going through just incredibly difficult times right now. It's like um, the, the timing of this uh, has been uh, perfect, almost as if it were planned, right? And so um, I, I want you to know that Everybody, most everybody here is going through some really, really difficult times. And, and uh, what we get to see is we get to watch uh, the gospel bear fruit in, in people's hearts and lives to give them hope and perseverance and uh, to sustain them in their, in their faith. And, and to that, for that to have such a powerful effect, it changes the way that they're living their lives and how they're relating to people and even, even to God. So um, I want to encourage you. Um, be praying for be praying for each other. Be praying for your church. And we are continuing in the wilderness. We pick up our story here in Exodus chapter 17 with Israel still in uh, the wilderness. And one of the things that we've been learning is that Jesus uses this t- our time in the in the wilderness to heal us, to heal our our souls. And and we see that in this story. We saw that, that God parted the Red Sea, right? Delivered Israel from, from slavery in Egypt. And now he's taking them to the, to the promised land, as promised, right? But first, they need to spend some time in the wilderness. Why? Why do they need to spend time in the wilderness? Well, Tom touched on this last week. The reason they need to spend some time in the wilderness is because you can take a person out of slavery in a second, but it takes a lifetime to take the slavery out of a person. And that's how this goes. So Israel must spend some time in the wilderness. Now, when you read the New Testament and um, you, you study it, what you, you come to the conclusion, you see, you learn that, that the wilderness is a picture of the Christian life. The entire Christian life is a wandering in the wilderness of sorts. And through faith in Jesus, you've been delivered from slavery, you've been delivered from death, and now you know that you are headed to the promised land. Eventually you'll get there. As promised, and God always makes good on his promises. But first, we need to spend some time in the wilderness. Why? Because you can take a person out of slavery in a second, but it takes a lifetime to take slavery out of the person. You know, I, I, think, of, I think of, you know, the, the various difficult things that, that, um, that has happened in my life or the difficult, uh, especially painful uh, things that have happened in the lives of, of people that I care about, people who are close to me, devastating things, th- things that, that left them with scars, and, you know, you don't have to be a pessimist to know that there is more difficult stuff around the corner. There is. I'm not trying to be negative. That's just, that's reality. And, and when it hits, I know there's more suffering in my life. 
And when it hits, I want to know that I'm not going to fall apart. And I think that's what we all want. When everything falls apart and, and everyone around us is, is falling apart, we want to know that we will have the strength and that we will have the peace and that we will have the perseverance in our faith. And God, he uh, graciously gives us a record of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness so that we can learn from their experience. And the, as a result, as a result, what he's after is that we will be able to handle living in the wilderness with poise and with courage. Now, I only have uh, two main points that I want to make today. doesn't mean the sermon's going to be any shorter, but I only have two points <laughs> in the sermon today. Two points that if you get them, if, they, if you get them in your heart, they will absolutely, absolutely not only change your heart, but change your life. Change everything. It'll change your priorities. It'll change what you value. It'll change the way you act. It'll change the things you do and don't do. This is life-changing because it comes from God, and that's what he's up to. He's in the process of, of changing our hearts, changing our lives, changing the world. The first truth, the first point that we have here is this, that God is faithful even when we aren't. God is faithful even when we aren't. Maybe you heard that before, but let's unpack this a little bit, and we'll start unpacking it by looking at verse 2, and it says that the people quarreled with Moses. Now, this word quarreled, that is a brand new word in our, in our Exodus series that we've been going through. Up to now, the people have been doing what? They've been grumbling against Moses. But now it says they quarreled with Moses. And it's absolutely a key word in this story. And verse 7 summarizes our passage that we looked up by repeating again that the people quarreled. This is actually legal language. Legal language is being used here. This is a legal Word, the use of the word quarrel in this text was a word that was used then to mean to bring a charge or a lawsuit against someone, to take somebody to court. So the people are angry and they are afraid that they're going to die of thirst in the wilderness and they want to get in a few good shots before they do. And so they quarrel. They actually bring a charge of murder against Moses, the imminent murder of millions of people. And Moses confirms this in verse 4 when, when Moses said, or when Moses cried to the Lord, they are almost ready to stone me. So what they're doing here is they're charging Moses with, with a capital offense. And in those, day, they, those days, they executed people by stoning them, throwing rocks at their head until they were dead. After the first service, I found this on my podium, okay, which, which was, uh, I, think, I think this can be helpful. When you imagine hundreds of these being thrown at you until you draw your last breath, I mean, can you imagine? And these people, they all have rocks in their hands. They're getting ready to kill Moses. They're charging him with murder. So they're going to execute him, and they're going to execute him by throwing rocks at him until he's dead. I don't know. That, I mean, we get so familiar with this story that we kind of emotionally detach from, from what's going on here. So I have a question. As they're about to stone Moses, my question is this. 
who are they really after? Who, who are they really putting on trial? Who is it that they really want to stone? Well, in verse 2, it says, the people quarreled with Moses, and Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? But then he says, why do you test the Lord? That's who they're really blaming. They're blaming God. After all, who is to blame for all of the problems in the world, right? I mean, I mean, if God is God, he could stop all of it, right? I mean, he has a few questions to answer. Now, I know that referring to World War II for illustrations may feel a little dated, but I've been watching a lot of World War II documentaries on Netflix lately. That's how I know I'm officially a dad in my 40s. Because that's what dads in their 40s do. One day you're going to catch yourself watching World War II documentaries and you're going to realize, oh, Matt was right. I'm a dad in my 40s. Now it's time for me to watch World War II documentaries. Right? (laughs) See, here's what you learn. Here's what you see. After World War II, when when the reports were coming in uh, uh, of all of the horrible absolutely unimaginable, horrible atrocities that were committed in the Nazi concentration camps, people began to ask, you know, an obvious question. Who is responsible for this? There was a German Lutheran pastor named Gunther Ruderborn, and he wrote a play called The Sign of Jonah. And in the play, when the, when the common German people hear about all of the atrocities, they say, this is absolutely horrible. This is unthinkable. This is awful. But we didn't do it. Our leaders did. And then the leaders say, hey, yeah, this is horrible, but you know what? It really wasn't our fault. It was our senior leaders. And then the, when the senior leaders were interviewed, uh, all they had were, were excuses. And then it dawns on everybody. We know who to blame. We know exactly who should be charged and judged for this. God is the guilty one. He's the one that has to answer for all of this. I mean, why did God make a world in which all this stuff can happen? God is the one who is to blame for evil. God is the one who is to blame for all the suffering in the world. And that's exactly what's happening here in our story. Since they can't get their hands on God, they go after his representative, Moses. Now, I know, I know that some of you may be in this similar situation. Something absolutely devastating has happened in your life. Something horrible has happened. You're going through it right now. You have an open wound, and it is just festering, and it is ruining your life and and your relationships, and you don't know if there's ever going to be an end to it. And you might be mad at a Moses in your life, or you may be just mad at life in general, but behind your quarrel with your Moses, or behind your quarrel with your life, when it comes down to it, if we're honest, we find out that we really have a quarrel with God, that we have a charge against God. Now, listen real carefully to the rest of the story. In verse 4, Moses goes to God and says, what shall I do with these people? So Moses, we see, has totally, completely lost his patience with the people, which is understandable, right? And he wants to put them on trial. You want to put me on trial? Put you on trial. And then the people lost their patience with Moses and God, and they want to put Moses and God on trial. Everyone has lost their patience. They've had it. They're done. Except for God. Moses says, 
what am I going to do with these people? And God says, I'll tell you what we're going to do with those people. We are going to meet their greatest need. I mean, that's not what you would expect God to say after the people are trying to put him and Moses on trial. He says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to meet their greatest need. Now listen, i got to tell you right now, that is real patience. That is true patience right there. I mean, real patience is not just waiting for somebody who is late for an appointment or whatever. Think of somebody that just really annoys you. You all have somebody that comes to mind, right? The person sitting right next to you maybe, possibly. Somebody who not only knows you, but then maybe think of somebody who, who just really, I mean, they're constantly uh, upsetting you, genuinely upsetting you. And, and you find the, the joy just getting sucked out of, your, out of your soul, out of your life. And patience, patience, true patience, is the willingness to respond to them by doing what you can to meet their greatest need. And that's what God does here. Now, notice, I want, you to be, I want you to see this. God doesn't say, ah, it's no big deal. It's cool. You know, let's fast track you to the promised land. No, that wouldn't be the best thing for them. God's still healing their souls. And so there's some still difficult things that God needs to bring them through. So forgiveness doesn't mean that the lack of difficult things or the lack of justice or, or whatever. But it is a willingness, it is a willingness to respond to somebody sinning against you to, to pray for their greatest need. Because you know that they need healing of their soul as well. Because you know that you need healing of your soul. We're all in the same boat when it comes to that. It changes your whole attitude, though. This is, that is, that is true patience. And what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that God is faithful even when we aren't. You know, we've, we've been reading about Israel in the wilderness for, for a few weeks now. And chapter after chapter and page after page, the, the, the people find themselves in trouble. And God comes through. And then God provides everything they need. And then you turn the page. And there's more trouble and more grumbling. And Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? Again, again, and again. They forget how God provided for them as if God doesn't even exist. And you know what? I, I don't know about you. Maybe you've heard the story a million times, but I am still, every time I read it or every time I hear it, I still have this tendency to think, why don't they get it? Why are they freaking out? Why, why don't they just, sh- just chill out? I'm, I mean, I'm, God always comes through for them, and I'm sure he will do it again. Why don't they just trust him? And it's way easy for us to think that when we read the story. Why is that? Why are we so, so surprised that they grumble, that they complain, that they don't get it? Here's why. It's because we are reading the story, and they are in the story. That's why. And there is a big difference between reading the story and being in the story, right? See, we can read the story, and we can easily see the big picture. We can see that the theme of this wilderness is is God's faithfulness to his people. But think about this now. What about your story and where you find yourself 
in your story? What are the difficult things in your heart and life right now that, that are, 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 are stirring up maybe bitterness or frustration or, or discontent or hopelessness? What trouble are you in right now? You know, as I think about it, and then I think about my story being written out for some reason. I don't know who would be interested in doing that. But say somebody wrote my story and somebody read my, my story. I know exactly what they would be thinking. Man, why, why is Matt freaking out? I mean, why doesn't Matt just chill? I mean, why can't Matt just see that God keeps coming through for him? He's a knucklehead. The problem is that when you're in the story, it's hard to see the big picture. That whatever moment you're in right now is not, does not represent the big picture. Whatever moment you are in right now does not define your life. But here's the thing. We do have an advantage. We have something the Israelites didn't have. God has blessed us with the book of Exodus. And the writer of Exodus is saying, let the story of Israel remind you that even though you can't see it right now, there is a bigger picture. And the theme of your wilderness wandering is the same as theirs. And it is all about the faithfulness of God. I'm telling you, we need to remind each other of that, especially when things are getting difficult. Because when you're going through it, all you can really see is the pain that's right in front of you, the frustration that's right in front of you. And you need, and then when you look at God, it distorts God. And you need the community. You need your brothers. You need your sisters to help change the order of the lenses so that you're looking through the lens of God and his promises and his gospel and looking at the difficult things that you're going through. And then you have clarity. We need each other for that. We absolutely need each other. The theme of your wilderness wandering, no matter what it is going through, is all about the faithfulness of God. And to the extent that you can see the big picture, you won't just survive in the wilderness. You'll thrive in it. So that's one truth that we learn from the story. That God is faithful even when we aren't. There's another thing we see. Ready? God is loving, especially when he judges. Does that sound right to anybody? Does that sound right to anybody? So what in the world is that? What do I mean by that? Well, here's the thing. How do we expect God to respond to the people here? Verse 5 says, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Here's what's going on. The people are demanding a trial. They want to stone Moses, but really, they're blaming God. So how is God going to respond to these people who are blaming him? God says to Moses, take your staff. What staff? Well, here, it's his staff has become a, a, a symbol of judicial authority. 
In ancient times, rulers would carry a staff as a, a, a symbol of, of judgment on injustice. And when a ruler would hear a case and find a person guilty, he would take the staff and use it as a club. The ruler would strike the person as a symbol of judgment. But this staff is not the staff of a human ruler. This is the club of God. This represents authority to judge. It is the symbol of perfect divine justice. And God says, take this club of my absolute judgment and take the elders with you. And these elders will serve as witnesses to the trial. And so out comes Moses with the club of God's judgment in his hand. And with him are his elders. And God is saying, all right, people want a trial? Let's give them a trial. But <laughs> what happens is, is a trial that's actually full of surprises. I mean, the first surprise is this. The first surprise is that the people realize that Moses will not be the one who gets tried here. They brought charges against Moses, but when they see that he is the one holding the club, they realize he's not the accused. He's going to be the judge. And then the second surprise here is, is Moses has, you know, the club in his hand, and, and he's bringing the elders with him, and he is headed right for them. Uh-oh. Can you imagine? I mean, that would have absolutely filled them with terror. Maybe some of them fainted. I mean, they knew what was going down. They knew what that club could do. They saw Moses strike the Nile with it, and the Nile turned to blood. They had seen Moses raise it and part the Red Sea, and they, they saw him raise it again, and the sea came crashing down on the Egyptians and wiped them out, and they remembered what God said to them, if you trust me in the wilderness, I will not bring upon you any of the judgment I brought on Egypt, but if you don't trust me, and now they're thinking, Moses isn't the one on trial here. We are. We have not trusted God. Instead, we grumbled. Instead, we complained. And now Moses is heading right for us. But then Moses walks right past him. And that's Moses' surprise. Before he headed out, God told him that it will not be the people who will be judged either. Oh, there will be a trial, and the accused will be charged, and the accused will be sentenced, but it's not going to be Moses, and it's not going to be the people. So who is it that's going on trial here? Verse 6, God says, Behold, I will stand before you. You know what? There are lots of times where, where people stand before God, but here, God stands before the people? See, to, to stand before someone normally refers to an inferior standing before a superior, and the inferior always stands before the superior. It is never the other way around. Anyone here ever been dragged into court? Oh, we actually had a couple of people willing to admit it. That's, that's great. <laughs> Many of you are lying right now, <laughs> not raising your, not raising your, you know who you are, and I know who some of you are, so. When you were dragged into court and there was a charge against you, 
I mean, have any one of you heard the judge say, hey, I got an idea. How about we change places? You know, you come up here, you put on my robe, you, you take my gavel, you sit on my chair, and I'll go down there, and I'll put on, on your blues, your slippers, and your cuffs, and, and I'll stand before you. Anyone? No? This is totally shocking. God says, I will stand before you. Now we know who is being tried. God is standing in the place of the accused. God is standing in the place of the guilty. God is standing in the place of execution. He's not only on trial and and standing, I mean, just not only on trial. He is standing in the place of execution. In verse 6, God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock, and you shall strike the rock. See, God is saying, Moses, I will stand on the rock, and you are to raise the club of divine judgment and bring the club down on me. What in the world is going on here? Well, back to the middle-aged dad documentary stuff. On the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the death camps in Germany, U.S. News and, and World Report ran a special that was Shocking. When the GIs entered the death camps in World War II to to liberate the people and saw the mountains of dead bodies and, and the unthinkable atrocities that happened in the death camps, they were hit so hard by the presence of evil. They were hit so hard by the presence of, of suffering and cruelty that in many cases, they turned on the German guards who had surrendered, who had thrown down their weapons, and they killed them right there on the spot in cold blood. And one of the GIs giving this testimonial said, you know what, we came over here to stop this, but now we're doing the same thing. Why'd that happen? Because when we see unspeakable suffering, when we see unspeakable evil, it is possible to be just in so much anguish and and be hit with a, a hurt that's so deep that we get filled with rage and we lash out. And then it's not it's not unusual to experience so much suffering that we turn our rage against God, and we blame him. It looks different from person to person. Now, that's what happens at the, the end of the, the, the play about World War II, the sign of Jonah. The, peop- the people said, we know who to blame for this. God, he's the one who created a world where all this stuff happens. They excused themselves and blamed God, and we do that. And the reason we do that is because it's our way of avoiding the fact that, that when it comes down to it, we all de- deserve to be judged. We all deserve to have the club of judgment come down on us. And let me tell you something. I'm not just talking about you all people. I'm talking about me. Okay? And we, including me, say in our lack of faith through our actions or in a very real sense, we end up saying, you know what? It's God's fault. He's the one that has to answer for this. I'm in a place to judge him. Now, is it wrong to blame God? Well, I think most of us would say 
yeah, that doesn't sound right, blaming God. So why do we think that it's God's fault? How, how can we blame him for all this evil stuff that people, people do? And how does God respond to being blamed for the evil that he hates? How do you think God responds when, when we point the finger at him? I, here's, I don't know, if any one of us were God, and, and we, we had a, a, you know, a hatred for evil, and then, and then still everybody, everybody who's supposed to be our people, turn on us and say, hey, it's your fault. And if any of us were God, we would say, you want to blame me? Who do you think you are? Pow, take that. I mean, I think that's our inclination, right? But that's not how God responds. At the end of this play, they, the people make a verdict and find God guilty as charged. And now it's time to sentence God. And here's a, a quote from that play, when the people sentence God. It says, let God become a human being. Let, let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him be deprived of rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty. He himself must die and lose his son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. And that's exactly what happened, right? It is absolutely wrong to, to blame God for the evil and suffering in the world. And yet, even though we have no right to blame God for the evil and the suffering in the world, God does the unthinkable, and he goes ahead and becomes the accused. He goes ahead and he takes the judgment. And the club of divine judgment comes down on him. And the apostle Paul writes that the Israelites all drank from the spiritual rock and that rock was Christ. And the apostle John says that when Jesus died on the cross, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, bringing a, a sudden flow of blood and water. Sin cleansing blood and life giving water. The God of the Bible, the scriptures, did something that no other deity in any other religion claims to have done. Here's the deal. Some of you, you know what, if you're honest, some of you can probably admit that you're, that you're mad at God right now. Or you have been. There's a chance if you haven't been that there may be a time in your future where you will be. Where you question him where you sit in judgment of him, thinking that we know better. Maybe you've just been really deeply, sincerely uh, just hurt and devastated by, by the evil and the suffering in the world, and, and you're filled with moral outrage. And you say, you know what, if there is a God, I don't want to have anything to do with him. I'm telling you, that's common. And, and you need to know that God is not the author of sin. He is not the author of, of the wilderness. He's not the author of suffering and evil in the world. It's wrong to blame him. But the biggest surprise of this is that God goes ahead and takes the blame anyway. On the cross, God was punished, not for his sin, but for ours. Why? Why, why did God stand in our place? I'll tell you why. Again, God hates evil and suffering infinitely more than you do. And he loves you 
infinitely more than you can imagine. Maybe you don't feel like you're loved by God. That doesn't change the truth of it. You may not feel like it. That does not change the truth of it. He loves you infinitely more than you can even imagine. He died so that evil and suffering will one day be destroyed without destroying us. How in the world can I turn my back on a God like that? How in the world can I sit in judgment of God like that? Again, I know that many of you are going through difficult wilderness experience right now. And maybe you're thinking, you know what? Where is God when you need him? Well, I want you to think about something. Why did God bring water out of, out of a rock? I mean, there, there's, I'm sure, several reasons. But one I want to point to is, you know, as I think about it, don't you think a rock is probably the most unlikely place to get water? Imagine you came up to me and said, you know, pa- Pastor Matt, I- I'm really thirsty. I said, uh, all right, you got it. I'll hook you up. Here's a rock. You'd be like, what? doesn't make any sense. But here's what God's saying. God is saying that in the most unlikely places, in the most difficult places, that, God says, is where you learn to drink of who I am. I am the rock. When things are going great, it's so easy to try to satisfy your your thirst with your, your job or your friends or your family or a special relationship of some kind um, or, or mo- what comfort, money, security, whatever it is. But when you are suffering in the wilderness and none of that stuff can bail you out, when you are suffering in the wilderness, when all other sources of water just dry up, it is then, God says, that is when you learn to drink of me, of who I am, and find life in me. And it comes down to this. The only way we learn that God is all we need is when God is all we have. You struggling right now? You going through it? And you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel? Jesus says this in John chapter 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. I know that might sound too good to be true while you're going through it, but it doesn't matter how you feel. It's still the truth. Thank God truth is not dependent upon the way we feel about it. It is true no matter what. And we are called for our good and his glory to drink from the rock. Drink and never thirst again. Amen? Would you please bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for for your amazing grace. God, we thank you that your grace is sufficient, whether we feel like it at the moment or not. God, and I know um, that as we all go, as we all live in a broken world, as we live our life in, in the wilderness, 
between being delivered from, from sin and death and, and before we, we enter the promised land, it is, it is so easy for us to suffer, and that's all we see, and then forget your promises. And God, I pray, Lord, that, that, um, that you would continue to open our, our eyes to the promises you have made and the promises that you have kept, that you are enough, that we, we really don't need anything else, that you are enough, that you are sufficient. And, and God, I pray, Lord, that, that, that we wouldn't just dismiss the difficult things that are happening in our life or, or even worse, dismiss uh, the difficult things going in the lives or, or around us, uh, but that we would see that, that you are in the process of, of healing our, our souls and that you want the best, absolute best for us. And so often we just don't get it. We don't see it. God, I, I, I pray again um, that we would remember who you are and what you've done for us. That you don't just make promises, but that you fulfill them. And God, I, I pray that, that um, you'd be quick to help us realize by your Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel that you would give us eyes to see where we don't, we don't trust you. Not just that, you know, having a general belief in whether or not you exist, but, but help us to trust you in all things. Help, me to trust, uh, help us to trust you and help us to trust your word, even the parts of your word that we may not understand or, or, or may not even uh, like or that we struggle with. God, help us to, to trust you because you proved that you have your, our, ulti our ultimate good and your glory in mind through the cross. We can always look to the cross and know and be convinced that you absolutely love us. When things don't make sense, we can look to the cross and know that you absolutely love us and will fulfill your promises. Make that real to us this morning. And God, I pray if there's anybody here that has not trusted you, that this morning would be the morning that you enable them to do that, give them the courage to do that, to follow you, to become your disciple, to become part of, of your, your family here with you as our Heavenly Father. And God, for those of us here who um, might be apathetic toward this, or we've heard it a million times, God, I just pray, Lord, that, that you'd peel off the calluses on our heart, that, that, that you would make us sensitive to the truth that you have for us and help us not to be distracted by anything else that's going on. Help us to be very aware of what your Spirit is doing in, in our hearts right here, right now. We pray these things.